before we make a start, I'll just check. I did have, I do have an outline, and I think it's helpful because I've got some excerpts out of an old creed, and it might be easy to follow. So if you haven't got that, I've got some spares here. You can put up your hand, I'll run around. Anyone want one and hasn't got one? Okay. So let's uh, pray to God. Dear God, we thank you that you've made yourself known to us through Jesus. And we pray now that as we listen to his word that we will understand it and have confidence that there is salvation in Christ and we can have confidence to tell others about him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've called the sermon, The Difference the Trinity Makes with reference to John's Gospel. And in a moment we're going to look at a historical creed which I was just referring to. That's called the Creed of Athanasius, or the Athanasius Creed. Uh, this creed gives an understanding of the Trinity from reflections by Christians from of old as a struggle to deal with views which were, which were false, not contrary to Scripture. We've already had the Nicene Creed. That also has Trinitarian language in that too, you know, like the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and so forth. So the, the old creeds obviously, there was obviously big issues going on with who is God and is Jesus God or not and so forth. And um, so today we're going to look at the Athanasius Creed because he says a lot about the Trinity. But as well as that we're going to look at the book of John because John, the Bible is our authority. So if the creed says something in a helpful way that's great but we always have to check it with the Bible is true and also the creed doesn't say everything and sometimes there's big things missing in creeds. So we'll look at that as well. Um, now... Our knowledge of Trinity will vary from person to person here, no doubt. And, um, and maybe, um, as I speak, there might be something um, that you haven't thought about and it's pushing your brain a bit. Don't worry about that. I had plenty of those moments as I was preparing this talk. So, but whatever, whatever your um, knowledge, I want at least at the end of the sermon to remember that Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins on the cross and that... Um, Salvation is in him alone. Now, the word Trinity itself is not in our Bibles. You might say, I'm a Bible reader. I've never, never seen the word. No, it's not in the Bibles. Yet the early church used it, and they found it necessary to come up with a word. Um, and that was to, to help us understand the God we worship, to get rid of confusion, and, and to you know, give us correct teaching, and also to expose false teaching. So teaching on the Trinity is to help us to know the truth about God, about who he is, what he's done and what he's doing. And, and, help, and understanding the Trinity actually helps us to respond to God the way he deserves. So while the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it does describe truth concerning God, who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. And just as the actual word Trinity is not in the Bible, not in our scriptures, the word gospel is not in John's gospel. Yet the book of John is all about the gospel. It's about the eternal life we can have through the actions of a Trinitarian God. So the fact that a word like Trinity is not in our Bibles doesn't matter. What matters is, is the concept of Trinity in the Bible, for it is the concept that matters. Indeed, um, we translate the Bible into other languages quite rightly, and what we're doing is we translate concepts. And the reason is 
Otherwise, our, our English translation wouldn't be a valid reading of scripture. As long as it's got the original concepts in the origi- of the original scripture, it's fine. That's why we read it. Indeed, the New Testament writers, when they write, they'll write the New Testament so many times, they actually quote, when they quote the Old Testament, they don't quote the Old Testament from the Hebrew. They quote, so often they quote, they might do that, but they, so often they quote the Old Testament from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. In their, they had in their possessions a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and they would quote from that. It doesn't have to be in the original language. As long as you, you're getting the concepts right, that's what matters. And the same as with Trinity, as long as we're getting the concepts right, it doesn't matter if the word is used in the Bible or not. Um, but it is a biblical concept because it does agree with Scripture. But now, where do you start when you're doing a sermon on the Trinity? So I thought, yes, as I mentioned earlier, we'll, we'll look at the Creed of Athanasius as a starting point. That's how Christians in the past are reflected. And um, Athanasius himself, he was born about 300 years after the birth of Christ. So not that long after Christ. Um, and he did a lot of defending of the biblical teaching on God as Trinity, though he didn't actually write the Creed of Athanasius, even though it bears his name. The Creed with which his name is attached was actually came about 100 or 200 years later. Um, how the custom of calling the Creed the Creed of Athanasius or Athanasian Creed at least honours Athanasius' contribution to the teaching on the Trinity. Now I'm going to quote some excerpts of the Creed of Athanasius and to do that I'm going to use a version which is, if you've ever been to an Anglican service without the Green Prayer Book, it's actually near the end of the Green Prayer Book. It's just before the 39 articles and the, the language there is like a 1662 English and that's the one I'm using. So it uses words like Holy Ghost which was fine in its time because ghost back then meant spirit. Now ghost means something spooky, whereas spirit now means, as we, as we understand it to be, the spirit of God, you know. But even then, you've got to use words in context because some people now are using the word spirit in a different way to what we use. They say, no, I had a spiritual experience. And they're not thinking, God's spirit was working my life. They're thinking, they're not even thinking about Christ and his spirit. They're thinking something else. They're using spiritual in another way. So even spirit is now moving in its meaning, but in its context, we know what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is. And back in 1662, Holy Ghost meant what we mean by the Holy Spirit, because ghost back then meant spirit, not something spooky. So there we go. So I'm going to now give you some quotes from the Athanasius Creed, where you see some of the Old English obviously hitting you. And it starts off, and the Catholic Church, a Catholic faith, sorry. Now it's interesting, Catholics even got a K in it, see back then. Now Catholic there means universal doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just is universal church. As Christians, we are a member of a universal church, anyone who acknowledges Jesus as Lord. So, and it says, And the Catholic faith exists that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So what, it, what the Creed is saying there, God is said to be one in three and three in one. The Creed also states, For as there is one person, the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Now the word person is used, being used to describe a relationship. It's not being used to describe a human person. It's not saying the father, when you're saying he's a person, when you're saying father, the father is human. It's just saying he is someone, is a, is a being who has relationships. So we're saying, the creed is saying the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit are each a person able to have a relationship. The creed also states, but the God of the father, of the son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. It also says the Father is God, the Son is God, 
and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. Another quote from the Creed is, The Father is made of none. So no one made the Father. He's, he's neither, neither created nor begotten, it says. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding, coming from. So none of the Trinity, none of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is created. They are from everlasting, but they are all distinctive. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and also from the Son, and it's the Father who has the Son. And it says the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. Now we're not talking about procreation here. We're, it's talking about a relationship that the Father is sourced, the Son is sourced from the Father. And indeed, uh, human fatherhood is named after the fatherhood of God, really. But, and the word begotten really means only or unique. It doesn't even have the word there in there for procreation. So the Son is the only unique Son of the Father. And he is eternally begotten. And this is a different. This is to counteract the heresy of Arian, which we still see in our society today with, with Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth. Like the, the heresy is to believe that there was a time when the Son was not. They say, oh, "I believe in the Son of God," but there was a time when He was not. But um, no, that's not that's not the truth. Um, he's been eternally begotten of the Father. Um, he wasn't created. The Creed also states, we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. Jesus in coming flesh is both fully God and fully man. And the Creed says, equal to the Father, talking about Christ, as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. For although he be God and man, yet he is not two but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the God into the flesh, but taking the manhood into God. And indeed, Christ, by coming to earth, becoming man, becoming flesh, dying, resurrecting and ascending, he has taken manhood into the Trinity. That's what we're saying. And we too, we're not in the Trinity, but we are, we're not Trinity, but we actually become brothers and sisters of Christ, don't we? Um, who is in the Trinity? Um, now, so uh, those quotes to me from Athanasius are helpful for the state truth. And they're concise. But they don't say everything that's important. Uh, it's not the complete truth, and therefore we need to keep coming back to the Scriptures. And when we look at the Trinity in John's Gospel, and we see what God is doing, we see that the God, who is Trinity, is seeking the lost. God is about our salvation through the death of Christ for the sins of the world. Whereas on the teaching, I don't know what Athanasius actually thought on this issue, but in, in the Creed itself, which bears his name, um, it just says, simply says there, Christ suffered for our salvation. Well, that's true. Christ did suffer for our salvation, but it doesn't say any more. Um, but that's also why Roman Catholics, um, Anglo-Catholics, that is Anglicans of the Catholic persuasion, Protestant Anglicans and other Protestants can agree on the truth of the Athanasius Creed because it doesn't say everything. The Athanasius Creed doesn't say everything. But as Protestants, we believe that Christ died for sins once for all. And he's not physically present in the Mass. He's not sacrificed again. So, you know, we, we might agree with someone on that nation's creed, but we have a very different view about what Christ is doing and how you get saved. And hence we'll say, which the Bible says, we're saved by works. No, grace, not by works. 
nearly being a heretic here. Um, so, so the Creed of Athanasius is helpful on the Trinity and it reminds us succinctly of essential truths of the Trinity, but we really need to see how God is Trinity, what he's doing in salvation. Um, so, but now, just to briefly sum up what the teaching of Athanasius is, the Father, Son and the Spirit are not three gods but one God. The one God eternally exists as three distinct persons. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but he is begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor begotten, but proceeding. And of course, Christ suffered for our salvation, which that's, but that's as far as Athanasius went in, in that creed. Now, from memory as a child, I was taught, I think it was probably a well-meaning Sunday school teacher, and I probably learned great things from Sunday school teachers and condemning, but, but I was taught the Trinity was a three-leaf clover. It was like a three-leaf clover. And really, it's not quite right, you know, because um, with a three-leaf clover, it's sort of just, you've got this one overall leaf, but you've got these three little bits of leaves hanging onto the upper bit, and um, it really doesn't get it. And... Um, because um, it's a bit like, also some people talk about water, you know, as being the trinity. You've got, you got ice, you know, liquid and steam. But there you have one transformed, you know, ice transforming into a liquid or liquid going to steam or vice versa. But that's, there's no indwelling, there's no permanent basis. Of, there's not, they're not all permanent in existence at the one time. Um, so when we use an, 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 analogies from creation to explain the trinity, we always get messed up. If we get something right, we get something wrong. And I think it's because, although there's a lot of an an analogies are used in the Bible for all sorts of things, when it comes to the Trinity, we just, we just can't do it. It's, almost, it's because I think we're doing something so unique, something so different, something that we've got to talk about God directly. We can't do it through analogies. Um, so now we move on to John's Gospel. Um, I'm going to give a brief, because we don't have much time, I'll give a brief summary of some of the key aspects of John and then we'll zero in on a few matters. So you, if you haven't read John lately, why not read it this week to see if what I'm saying is correct and also you'll see things that I'm not even talking about. Um, but here's a quick summary of John's Gospel. It's, it's, these are some points I'm making. The work of God in salvation reveals the Trinity. We see that God is Trinity from the way he saves us from our sins and we also see that there are three distinct persons of the Godhead each of whom is essential for our salvation. That's one point. Second point is, there's salvation only because God is Trinity. If God is not triune, then there is no salvation. Thirdly, God in Trinity has acted and is acting to bring people eternal salvation from judgment. A fourth point here is, God the Son needed to become flesh to die on the cross for our salvation. Fifthly, the God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have incorporated us into the work of bearing fruit, of bringing others to salvation. And my last point, to have eternal life, we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Which brings us on to looking at the book, just some acts, just particular passages in the book of John. And um, we'll see how dif the difference the Trinity makes. I'm going to start with what John does, which he starts with the Word of God. The book starts with, in the beginning, as we heard earlier, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right at the start of the Gospel, in what is commonly known as the prologue, 
John, or her, the writer of the gospel, of John's gospel, gives us a heads up. He makes the bold and true statement that Jesus is God. And this word, this word was with God and was God. In verse 14 of the chapter of 1, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the word that was with God, who became flesh, is Jesus, and he's the only Son from the Father. The word of God, who is the Son of God, became man, yet he's still fully God. And so we see that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. So right at the start of the gospel, we've been given the heads up that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And we also read in John chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and remained on him in chapter 1 verse 32. And then in John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, Jesus says how he is going to be, must be lifted up. Jesus looking for looking towards, looking forward, I mean it was going to be difficult from the cross, but he knew he was, he was facing the cross. He's looking ahead. We say looking forward is like it's exciting, don't we? I'm looking forward to something. I don't think Jesus was thinking so much exciting, except the repercussions, because it was a great difficulty to face the cross. But he knew he had to do that. But he was looking ahead, and he said he, said he must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's telling us where he's going. Then in John chapter 3, those well-known verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And towards the end of the gospel, it just, Jesus is lifted up on a cross where he takes our sin, our punishment, so that what Jesus said, said earlier came about. And if Jesus was not God, then he couldn't die for us all. And if he was man, he couldn't shed blood. The gospel message is God the Father sent God the Son to become flesh. And Jesus is fully God and fully man, died on the cross for the sins of the world. So that all who believe in Jesus, the Son of God, are saved. And so if he wasn't fully God, he couldn't pay for all sins. If he was not man, he couldn't bleed for us. And he couldn't have defeated Satan. Because um, in John chapter 12, verse 31 to 33, Jesus says this. Now is it, so this is just before heading up to the crucifixion, very close to it. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the rule of the world be cast out. The rule here is talking about is Satan. So Satan is a ruler of this world, and well, he's now defeated. He still exists, but he, 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 Jesus triumphed over him in the cross. So we don't have to fear Satan. But he says, so Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus brings judgment on Satan, the rule of the world, when he dies on the cross. So dying on the cross might look like a defeat, but it's a glorious triumph. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews says, in chapter 2, verse 14, and 17 and 18, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So it's very important for Jesus to become human. I don't understand why as such, but this was to do with the defeat of Satan. One, besides taking our sins and bleeding for us, he actually defeated Satan. And then in verse 17 and 18 it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So in becoming flesh, Jesus took humanity into the Godhead, as the creed, the Athanasius Creed reminds us, and which is marvellous. And, and that's, of course, why we can be called brothers and sisters of Christ in eternity. Without the Son becoming flesh, as without the Son becoming flesh, there'd be no gospel. And at the end of the gospel of John, as, one of the, as Jesus confronts Thomas, who was doubting that Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus confronts him, physically risen, Thomas's response was, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you see me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, Get up, be a blasphemous creature. He commends those that can see it without even actually physically seeing Jesus. He confirms that Thomas is correct in calling him Lord and God. And Jesus gives this great encouragement to all those who believe him without actually seeing him because he says we're blessed we're blessed and John in writing this gospel if it was John whoever wrote it he said he gives us his purpose for writing in chapter 20 verse 31 so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God that by believing you may have life in his name so there we are we have the purpose of John John's gospel the purpose is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And back in chapter 1, verse 12, it was expressed, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So as the Son of God, who is fully God and fully man, all who believe in him become children of God the Father. So what... What then is the Father's role in salvation? We see that Christ dies for our sins. What is the role of the Father? Well, we're told that God the Father sent Jesus into the world. In chapter 3, verse 17 of John, we're given the reason when it says, For God did not send his Son into the world. So it says God did the sending of it. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we, hear, we read about the purpose of God sending his Son there. God's, God the Father sent the Son into the world to save mankind. And Jesus tells us more in chapter 6, verse 30, starting at verse 38, tells us more about the purpose of the Father sending the Son. He says, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. So the Son does the will of the Father who sent him, so that he can save those that the Father has given him. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, is gaining the children of God, all to do with the purpose of the Heavenly Father. As well as that, we find that Jesus is taught by the Father. Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 16 of John, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. So it's the Father's teaching to the Son that we get. And then in chapter 7, verse 18, The one who speaks in his own authority, this is Jesus, the one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, 
and in him there is no falsehood. So we can have confidence that Jesus is true and there's no falsehood because he was sent by the Father and he only speaks what the Father wants him to speak. So we have every confidence in the teaching of Jesus because it comes from God his Father. Then you might ask, well, what is the Spirit doing? Well, the Spirit is involved in our salvation. As both the Spirit, the Father and the Son are needed for us to come to, to, come to have forgiveness. We cannot come to Christ without the work of the Spirit in our lives. Without the work of the Spirit, there is no salvation. Because in John chapter 3, you might remember the story about Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Well, pick this up in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we need to be born again. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we need to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind or spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we need to be born again. That requires the work of the Spirit. And as a fact, in coming to Christ, putting our trust in Christ, shows evidence of the work of the Spirit in our lives. And as we're told, the spirit is like the wind. It's the same word, actually, for wind. You can, when it says wind, it could be spirit. But the idea here is Jesus is using that because he, the wind goes where it wants to and the spirit goes where he wants to. Um, and if he, if he works in your life to put you, you to trust in Christ, well, there's, there's great joy, isn't there? Um, but then when we, are, we also find... That just before the cross, this is what Jesus says during the, su- the supper, the, sometimes called the Last Supper. Jesus said it was to his advantage, it was to their advantage, the disciples' advantage, that he was going to lead them. For then he would send the Holy Spirit to them. I mean, obviously, sometimes we think, oh, people think, oh, if only I'd been back in that day when Jesus was around. And Jesus is saying, it's, he was telling his disciples, it's your advantage, your advantage that I go. Because then I'll give you the Spirit. And wherever we are, we have the Spirit. We don't have to say, oh, I've got to go next door to see Jesus. The Spirit is with us all the time. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. When it says the helper will come, that's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you can translate counsellor, friend, advocate. Um, and, he, and Jesus says, the reason that this is good, he says in verse 8, is, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, that's right. To become a Christian, you've got to say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need help. I need to know how you get righteous. I need to know that about judgment. What I'm doing is, is, is serious. And that's, what, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin and righteousness judgment. And, and uh, Jesus goes on to say in verse 9 there of chapter 16, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because they go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the rule of this world is judged. For Jesus has already said in John chapter 15, verses 26 to his, his apostles, But when the Helper comes, so he just said a bit earlier then, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit bears witness about Jesus. And then he says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit bears witness about Jesus and he does that you know, within our lives as we hear the word of God. And um, we're also to bear witness. We pass it on. The, the task was given the apostles and we pass it on. So this brings us, brings us to the final point here, the um, main point about our response is to bear fruit. That's our response to the work of God in Trinity in bringing salvation. Jesus said to his apostles in chapter 20, verse 21, 22, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So God in Trinity, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is bringing about salvation. And this comes about by Jesus dying on the cross. And God is working a great harvest, firstly by the apostles, but also as we pass in the message. And Jesus said to his apostles, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. This is the purpose of God, that we remain in Jesus, and by this we'll bear fruit. John 15, 16, Jesus said, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now that's the apostles, they're gone, but we do have the message being given to us. And we know God's purpose is for people to be saved. They don't be saved by giving, giving the word. And um, so we, we're caught up in the bearing fruit task as well. The death and resurrection of Jesus brings in the era of people being drawn into him. And we're fruit of that. And we're part of bearing fruit, further fruit, so other people can hear. Jesus does this by sending people out, equipping them with the comforter who applies the work of Jesus in dying on the cross to the world. And God ensures that there will be fruit because in John chapter 15, verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And this is in the context of bearing fruit. So remaining in Jesus, bearing fruit and praying for help all go with people coming to know Christ. We're not apostles, but we have the written word, we have John's gospel, and we can pass it on. We can ask a friend, would you like a copy of John's gospel? Would you like, me to, would you like to read John's gospel with me? You might teach a scripture class, you might teach some children, grandchildren, whatever. You might know John's gospel off by heart and when someone says something to you when you're buying your newspaper, oh, something comes to mind that fits that and you can use a concept, a word from John's gospel. Um, we don't know how God will use it, but we can pray to be used to pass on the word and we can have every confidence in the gospel. So to sum up, God is Trinity and, he, and he's Trinity in bringing salvation because God is Trinity he's able to save and God being Trinity has incorporated us into the work of bearing fruit of bringing others to salvation having a God who is Trinity makes all the difference we can be confident in our salvation we can be confident that anything that we ask in the name of Jesus will be answered we can be confident that God will give us opportunities for the gospel Trinity makes all the difference to our future and to the future of those who we share the gospel with. We'll pray. Dear God, we thank you that you act for the salvation of people. We thank you that we can have every confidence in you because you are Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we'll have opportunities to help tell people of salvation so that they can become your children, Heavenly Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.